The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio on the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome a man who's currently wearing two hats, Michael Wilson. Currently, your day job, you just completed your ninth season as Artistic Director of Hartford Stage Company in Hartford, Connecticut. And your night job, your other job, is as Director of a show running at the American Airlines Theater, one of the Roundabouts Productions, Old Acquaintance. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, John. We'll get to Hartford Stage in a few minutes. I want to talk about your current production of Old Acquaintance, which was actually a show from 1940 when it opened on Broadway, and now here it is, I guess, the first Broadway revival of Old Acquaintance. It is the first Broadway revival, and it's a <clears throat> play by what so, someone that sounds a lot like you, John Van Druten. Um, very close. Very close. <laughs> um, and it is a delightful romantic comedy that um, has been such a pleasure to work on with this amazing cast, and I think um, it's so fantastic to have it back on Broadway because it really gives us a glimpse of what Broadway in 1940 was like. And, of course, it um, it was a very uh, language, and it is a very language-driven play, and you can see how important language and wit and colorful characters set against a very romantic New York backdrop are – um, were prevalent in a number of plays at that time, but I, I, you know it's a real standout of a, of a play as well because of the level of um, intelligence he brings not only to his characters but to the situations and the complexity. Uh, because on the surface you could dismiss it as like a boulevard comedy, but I think Van Druten was writing from a, a much deeper perspective. Um, I, I mean, some critics have called it uh, a two-handed version of the women with the men. Um, and that certainly captures uh, some of the cat equality that can happen between the two lead characters played by Margaret Colin and Harriet Harris. Um, but uh, I, I think the play is, is about some really Im- Im- important and vital issues, in, including how women define themselves and whether they define themselves alone unto themselves as independent forces, uh, independent of men, and also the power uh, that friendship plays in our lives. Well, as the official uh, publicity for the show uh, uh, puts it, two women, friends since childhood but now rivals, realize who the real enemy is. And basically these are women who are very close friends, but they have their, their issues, shall we say. Well, someone has called them, uh, I guess it's a recent term, frenemies. Um <laughs> Which I think is kind of fun. I, I, I hadn't used that term a lot. Um, they do have their issues. They've been friends since uh, the, growing up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania together. Um, they're both successful novelists. One, uh, say like Danielle Steele, um, uh, is a very commercial artist in terms of the number of books that she sells and the number of books she's able to write, uh, at least one a year. Um and the other one, um, Kit Markham, um, her output of novel writing is, is much less, but she is a darling of the critics. Um, so one of them has that critical acclaim, but not quite the monetary success. And the other one has um, financial security. Um, and this, the other one, Mildred Watson Drake, played by Harriet Harris, uh, has also been married and has a daughter and has a house in the Burbs. Pelham it is, to be specific. Um, but she has longed to have, I think, uh, a wilder, uh, 
life that her friend Kit Markham has had, who's had a number of affairs and has led a much more kind of glamorous, enviable life from afar. Whereas, on the other hand, Kit Markham looks at her friend and says, wow, you had a husband, you've raised a daughter, you have a daughter that who may not always seem to love you, but she does look up to you as her mother for the, ultimately when it's said and done. And as she's getting on in advancing years um, and she doesn't have a permanent man in her life, would is starting to think a lot of the things that Millie has had in her life that seem conventional, she would like to have for herself. So part of the, the interest of the play is that she starts thinking, maybe I would like to get married and I want a daughter so bad, I think I'm going to put my hands on your daughter and take her for mine and make her love me as much if not more than she's loved you. And therefore, that sets up a whole conflict of of, of battles and, and jealousies and, and portrayals that's quite funnily uh, executed. Was this a play that you knew before getting involved in this production? Was this something that you got a call from Roundabout and they said, would you be interested and you read it for the first time or something that you'd always had in the back of your mind it would be fun to do? Like probably most of the listeners out there, I knew John Van Druten as the, you know, the, the guy that gave us I Am a Camera that then inspired Cabaret, um, our Bell Book and Candle. Perhaps I Remember Mama, perhaps Voice of the Turtle, uh, but I didn't know Old Acquaintance. I got a call from Roundabout last fall. Uh, Todd Hames um, has been very um, supportive and kind about my work through the years, and he said, Michael, I've been looking for a project for you to do with us, and I came across this play, this play Past, you know, came across his desk, and he said, "Would you give it a read and see if you think it's worth doing a reading of?" And at first, I thought old acquaintance, and you start reading the set in this apartment in the West Village in the 1940s, very box set, and you think, "Oh, is this going to feel really creaky and heavy and hard to kind of motor in the 21st century?" And um, I was surprised at the uh, the the intelligence, the 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 lightness of touch, but also the the depth of feeling and the universality of the experience of the play. I was really, I was really quite taken with it. And I, 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 I went into it quite cynically, to be honest. And I said to Todd, I think, I said, I think there is something here. I said, we should definitely hear this play. And we were lucky that Harriet Harris came out from, she was doing Glass Menagerie at the Guthrie with Joe Dowling. And she flew out and did the reading with us in March. And she was absolutely marvelous, says Mildred Watson Drake. And, you know, one of those rare uh, marriages between actor and role. It was completely uh, just a seismic experience hearing her do it that day. And I thought that was it. Um, you know, that it was great to hear this play. It, it definitely speaks to us today in a, in, a, in a new and different way about where we are in gender relationships and certain points of our of our lives. And, in any event, then something uh, changed in the roundabout schedule, and we were asked to go into production the very next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> casting and design and everything had to come together rather quickly. But, it, you know, it was kind of fun to work that fast and immerse yourself in the world of, of John Ben Druten, who was very young, 39 years old, when he wrote the play. And it was his first play that he wrote about Americans. He'd come from England and all of his other plays up to that point had been um, about uh, you know British subjects. And in fact, John Gilgut had done uh, John Van Druten's first successful play in, in London. 
But he had uh, his first big success in New York and and really adopted America as his home. But in the play, Margaret Collins' character, Kit Markham, is an outsider uh, to the conventional world. And I think John Van Druten saw himself very much as an outsider, always. He didn't quite belong in London, who never really accepted him the way that the New York theater did. And even though he loved America, he was... You know, from England, and so he was always someone that was um, a stranger uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a strange land. Well, today it's a play that opened 67 years ago, but when it did open two days before Christmas in 1940, the setting of the play, in fact, is November, December 1940. So it was very much contemporary, I guess, in those days. And then it was 1943 made into a film which starred Betty Davis and uh, Miriam Hopkins. Did you look at the film before? doing the show? Did you make any reference to that at all? I did look at the film um, because I, f- I knew that others would look at the film. Uh-huh. Uh, and I felt like I needed to know what expectations of audiences would be. Um, but it's really interesting. The film is so completely different from the play. Hmm. Um, Van Druten was a screenwriter. Uh, he was a novelist, too. He wrote a, and he was also a stage director. He directed the original production of The King and I on Broadway. And actually, he directed after... Um, his close collaborator, Oriole Lee, passed away. He directed a number of his own plays. but um, And he was a contributing screenwriter on Gone with the Wind just months before this play would um, premiere on Broadway. And he also was a screenwriter on the film. But I think there were a number of other screenwriters involved. And by the time they got around to doing the play, they had updated it to the war. And they made it a a wartime story uh, in which the men were all engaged uh, in the war conflict. And, in fact, uh, Betty Davis, who plays the Margaret Cullen role uh, – Margaret loves it when I say that um, – <laughs> she also at that point is working for the Red Cross. And, and, and you know, I, I think it skews the film trem- – I mean, the story tremendously. The film does. Um, because suddenly as soon as you put an event as big as World War II uh, – you know the story is being measured in a way that I don't think it was ever intended for. Uh, the way it is here in its revival, it's you know taking place in December, November, December, nineteen forty, a whole year before Pearl Harbor would unfold. And I think you're able to focus on the re- on the relationships. Um, and I think that was what Van Druten's intention was. And in, in the way that relationships and friendships and husbands, wives, lovers, the way that we comport ourselves and that is something that's universal that uh, that transcends uh uh i think uh wartime and peacetime um but certainly the the war aspect of and also the film just opened it up i mean they you saw the friendship over decades whereas this in the play you see over a 6 week period so it's very compressed and respects uh aristotle's unities more so to speak well, I read one interview with the actresses, and I can't remember who said it, but one of them said of, of your approach that it was perhaps a gentler approach. And it struck me when I looked at uh, the IMDb, and the first thing that comes up is it says that the film is a camp fest. Do you think you've taken a gentler approach in relation to what the play might have been originally, or is it simply a gentler approach in relation to what the film was? Well, I think it's... Definitely a gentler approach into what in relation to what the film was, because uh, uh, the film does border on on camp. Um, not to say there's not some wonderful moments in it, but it it it's tipping uh, its hand towards that direction. Um, 
I would think since Van Druten was around and from what I've read about the play, both in features and, and, and the criticism of, of the original production, that it was not intended to be camp and that he, working with Ariel Lee, his director and collaborator, worked diligently for it to stay in a in a place of great decency. When one of the lines in the play that uh, Corey Stahl's character says is, don't you know that there isn't anyone in the world that you um, must not be considerate with? You have to, you know, it, it, the playwright was uh, one that was very sensitive, uh, uh, wrote quite sensitively about people and believed um, in having a lot of respect and dignity for those characters. So even though Harriet Harris just has tremendous scenes and tantrum tantrums that make us really laugh, I think Harriet and the rest of the actors have approached the play with with great dignity and respect for truth. Well, it's a play that's in three acts, and I guess it was somewhere midway in the second act, this realization came to me. In my mind, I was seeing the thin man, Nick and Nora Charles, having kind of that same, you know, spunk, kind of the same um, affection for one another, yet at the same time kind of at each other. It was... Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you're the second person that said to me, uh-huh. made the William Powell Merloy uh-huh. reference. Um, and I think um, it's that kind of repartee and that kind exactly. of sharpness of, of wit and those uh, rapiers coming out from one another. And I can match you and raise you with that remark and the, the, the lightning speed with which they do it. Uh, I think all of us dream to be that smart. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things you watch the play and it's like, damn, I wish I was that witty. <laughs> Um, and and it makes you um, uh, just celebrate the idea that you can uh, kind of spar and debate and argue and actually one-up someone with uh, the power of wit. And, you know, Van Druten believed very strongly in using wit as a constructive force. And I think that's the other interesting thing that takes it away from camp, Howard, is that he believed that wit can be a constructive force in our lives and and in creative dramas, and I think ultimately that's where he's using it for, not in a demeaning kind of destructive way, which I think camp can sometimes slide into. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I've had fun with camp, but it often doesn't last more than twenty minutes. I think. <laughs> well, we're talking, of course, about what is your second Broadway credit, but your extensive directing career has taken you around the country, and it's it's fascinating in, in looking at information on you. You graduated college, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1987, and by 1990 you were already an associate at the Alley Theater in Houston. It seemed to happen pretty fast. How did How did that come to be? Well... In those days, um, <laughs> I Tell was. Us old uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I was fairly, um, um, I guess, energetic, uh, somewhat uh, tireless at the time. Um, I, I had gone to a really great school, Chapel Hill, um, that had a, a resident pr- professional theater company with it, uh, a Lort company, like Roundabouts, a Lort company, Lincoln Center Theater, a Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, it's a small company, Playmakers Repertory Company, but I had a lot of experience acting with that company. And by the time I was senior, I was working as assistant to the executive producer, helping them deal with uh, negotiations with the states about rights and all kinds of stuff that was heady for a senior in college to be dealing with. But it was good experience. Um, and I, um, from there, I worked with Robert Brustein at the American Repertory Theater and 
was the company manager and house manager there for a couple years right out of school and stage managing workshops for Anne Bogart and working with Robert Wilson and Andre Serban and Richard Foreman. And that became my graduate school education. I would um, take care of the housing and the travel for all the artists during the day. When those The artists during that time included Cherry Jones, who was in the company. Uh, Harriet Harris was there when I first got there. Uh, so I've known her for a great many years. Um, Julie Taymor was, you know, at that point was just making puppets and masks. And um, yeah. she was just hanging around helping Andre with the Kingstag. But you're on the management side as you're talking about it, really. Well, I, House I, management I, and I, company I, management and what you did at Chapel Hill. You know, I came from North Carolina and uh, I came from a lovely family um, that supported me in the theater. But they didn't have a lot of money. Um and um, I was lucky to get a scholarship to go to school. But when I left, I knew that I had to get work to pay my own way. So um, my first job, actually, uh, when I got to Cambridge, was selling newspapers at Out of Town News uh, there in Harvard Square. And uh, I was taking playwriting at the Harvard Summer Drama School that summer um, because I had resisted going to the West Coast. Uh, some friends had gone out there, and I had worked out there at MTM Productions when I was in college. But I somehow was worried about um, jumping into television and film. I thought somehow that the theater would be better for, I don't know, my soul or development of my potential as an artist. And so what happened was they they were needed a house manager at ART and – uh, I was able to get that job, and through that, I had a, a little salary, not a big salary, but something that I could pay my rent and food. And during during that two years, I would get that work done during the day, and at night, I would watch Andre Cervantes or Robert Wilson or these amazing directors. And um, I really kind of learned how to direct through – uh, not only the work that I'd done at Chapel Hill with artists like Gregory Boyd, but who runs the alley now, but kind of made myself an apprentice. And um, I would go sit in on Bruce Dean's class at Harvard, and um, it was called Rep Ideal. And it was basically, if you know Theater of Revolt, he would basically give those lectures live. But it was fun to hear them live as opposed to reading them. Um, so um, I don't want to say I was self-taught, but I, um, I did what I had to do, which was um, – um, put myself out there with the, with the experience and um, and give myself the opportunity that I could both um, seize and, and afford. And the ART, I have to say, was an amazing family for me, and they were very generous with me, and they threw me into creative situations. I started understudying, and by the time that I was through with my second year, they offered for me to be the casting director there because the casting director was leaving, and they felt I had a good sense of actors and so I was about to move up and work with Bob and Rob Orchard in that capacity, um, and then the Alley Theater opportunity came up, and I went and did the casting um, opportunity down there. And I felt at the time that there would be more creative opportunities coming sooner at the Alley, partly because there's the Institute for Advanced Theater Training at Harvard, and Tina Landau was a student then when I was there on the staff, so we were all coming of age together. and. You know, I just thought that if any of those kinds of directing opportunities were probably going to go to institute students, which I wasn't at the time. Um, but I, I still have a suitcase in Cambridge. I um, I, <laughs> I have uh, – and I go there at least once a year and um, 
you know, even though it, the leadership has changed, uh, there's a lot of folks that are that are still there. And during that time, Howard, uh, you know, is when I started driving over to to see Mark Lamos's work at Hartford Stage, and I saw uh, Hamlet that he did with Richard Thomas, that John Conklin did the set for, and Pierre Gant uh, again with Richard Thomas, and. Cambridge was just a great base from where I could go see work at, at Hartford or, or Yale Rep or New York. And so it was total immersion into the theater. And, you know, when you're that age and there's just such excitement about getting to see all these plays, especially a play like Pierre Ghent, which I look back now and I think it was, for me, it was the coast of utopia of my generation <laughs> you know, because it was a big, sprawling seemed to be like a five-hour production. <laughs> it was six. We should acknowledge <laughs> that. Was six. We should acknowledge it that, that I was on staff at Hartford Stage at the time you were coming over to see those shows, and but also had that great experience of when you're in the Northeast, the proximity to so many great regional theaters is extraordinary, and, and there is so much that can be seen. It's true, and, I, and even after that time... Um, you know, once I then was in Houston, and then later I would move to New York working with Des Mackinoff on the Who's Tommy. I, I assisted him on that in 1993. I would continue to, to go up and see the work at Hartford Stage because it was only a train ride away. And, you know, why not go see um, Richard III or go see Romeo and Juliet? Uh, uh, you know, that Romeo and Juliet had a young actress, Calista Flockhart, playing Juliet. And was it great to see Mark? you know, work through uh, a lot of these plays by Shakespeare. And so it was very strange when the call came about whether or not I would uh, want to be uh, considered interviewed for the artistic director of Hartford Stage. I I, I uh, really had no intention of, of becoming an artistic director at that moment. I was directing Philip Seymour Hoffman and Lois Smith um, – and Jonathan Hadari, a, a wonderful play at what is now the Laura Pels Theater, but it was the, then the American Place. Um, Jane Anderson's play, Defying Gravity, and it was for Daryl Roth, and it was um, just a great experience. Um, and I, I think my career uh, here in New York as a young director was was emerging. Some say burgeoning. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say, you know, when you're in it, but others say things uh, like Lois was. Smith was particularly very encouraging, but sure. I. But anyway, I when they called, it was because it was Hartford Stage. I, I had seen the fantastic work there since the late eighties, and um, I I just said to my agent, who, Helen Merrill, at the time, that well, I have to go have a conversation with that theater. That's one of the great theaters of America, and i just you know i didn't dream that i would end up running it and now i've been running it for nine years the at least the artistic side and it seems still strange to me that that that's happened but it's also quite <laughs> fortuitous because certainly we're familiar with hartford but now here you are being offered the job of artistic director which means you get to choose the work that they do and also get to direct you've directed 21 productions so far at hartford stage so it gives you a good outlet for your directing Interest, as well as getting to choose the work and develop the work. No question. And and that's what Tony Kushner said that to me. He said, Michael, and he was one of my references, he said, Michael, because we'd worked together on Angels in America that I had done at the Alley and that we took to the Venice Biennale, which was, you know, a highlight of my life and my career. Um, 
And he said, I think, Michael, you should really go to Hartford because if you really want to grow as an artist, you need to to put yourself in the atmosphere of a not-for-profit theater because the vicissitudes of the commercial theater, which I was going in and out of at that time, um, are such that – you know, you might not be able to grow fully as an artist, and there at, at a not-for-profit theater, you're going to be able to engage with texts that you otherwise would never have. Um, and so some of the work, say, that I've managed to do with new plays or with Tennessee Williams, you know, I'm not sure that anyone else would have ever hired me to do that, or, or would anybody else even do plays like The One Exception, his last play that he wrote, or The Palooka, one of his earliest plays, or... So in that sense, it's been extremely gratifying. And I think um, I what I've tried to do is build upon the great work that Mark Lamos did before me and that Paul Widener did before him and Jacques Cartier, the founding director, before Paul. And and it's, it's, it's great to have um, artists like that as your predecessors because it gives you um, – something to uh, live up to and a legacy to uphold. And I think that becomes both an opportunity and a responsibility. Uh, so we've tried to keep the pot boiling up there. Uh, well, prior to your taking the job, you were, when you were working in New York, you said uh, the beauty was that Hartford was only a train ride away, so it was easy to get up there and see production. Now you're working in Hartford, it's still only a train ride in the other direction to get to New York, so it allows you that opportunity. Was there any hesitation at all in taking the job at Hartford? when they offered it to you? Or was it like a dream come true? You know, I was directing Tom Donaghy's play in Philadelphia uh, at the Philadelphia Theater Company, his play Minutes from the Blue Route. Um, and I still remember when the board president called and uh, and I was at a bar, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a lot of, you know, theater people find themselves after a performance. And and in any event, they called and said that you're the unanimous choice of the of the search committee to come be the fourth artistic director of Hartford Stage. And it was an exhilarating moment. And um, I do remember saying to Tuck Miller, who was the this head of the search committee, became president of the board later, I said, thank you so much. This is a great honor. Um, I didn't say let me take two aspirin. I'll call you in the morning. But I said – uh, I will call you tomorrow, and, and the first call that I made the next morning when it was a reasonable hour was Mark Lamos because mm-hmm. um, I felt like I, there was that appropriate moment with Mark, and then I called Tracy Brigden, who was then working for Lynn Meadow at Manhattan Theater Club, and so there were, uh, then accepted the job, yes. I think by that point I was ready to take the plunge, um, and I have been lucky that um, – Hartford has uh, afforded me the resources to not only do my own creative work, but to have um, great playwrights, young and old, and other, uh, I mean, fantastic directors uh, working with me there, both in residence and and as guest directors. And so it's been a tremendous uh, growth experience. Um, But it was it was fun that that moment when I called Mark and. Tracy and then and Chris Baker, the transition moment started happening kind of immediately. Well, as you say, as an artistic director, you get to choose the work you want to do, and you immediately, from the moment you took that job, said, I want to explore all of the work of Tennessee Williams. What 
about Tennessee Williams. We know there are certainly many great plays, but there are a number of plays that are little seen. Why why that challenge for yourself? What what did you see in that work that you wanted to spend on and off now already nine years exploring and presumably still more to go? Yes, next year is our 10th year for the Tennessee Williams Marathon and Olympia Dukakis is coming up to do the Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore, which has not had a major production since uh, Elizabeth Ashley and Amanda Plummer uh, and um, oh, uh, Marion Seldes uh, did it uh, at the WPA in 87, which I also saw when I was at ART, drove down and saw that. I, I think, you know, a few things about that. Um, we were talking about John Van Druten earlier, who uh, was an outsider in America. I think Tennessee Williams is uh, kind of one of one of the great outsiders of of the American theater. Someone who was a fugitive kind in this country and wrote about what he called the fugitive kind. Those people that lived on the margin that were somehow disenfranchised from society and I thought that fact that Tennessee would make a hero out of a woman that had become um, basically uh, just above a prostitute really and find a way to create uh, such compassion for her and essentially make her probably one of the greatest protagonists of the 20th century American theater course, Blanche DeBond and a streetcar named Desire. Uh, I thought that was an extraordinary accomplishment and, and a gift to us that um, he could take these people that we would otherwise maybe um, turn our backs on or turn our noses up at and give them such vivid life and with such rich poetic language. Um, and I felt that if the New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater could do a marathon around Shakespeare. Why is there not an American theater that's committing itself to exploring the works, both known and less familiar, of arguably um, one of our country's greatest playwrights? Um, I, you know, a lot of people argue back and forth whether O'Neill is the greatest or whether Williams or Miller. I mean, there's they're they're certainly all part of a of a trinity, if you will, of of a time that they were all writing together, right when the American theater was exploding in the '40s and the '50s. O'Neill, obviously earlier, but continued had plays that were being performed at the same time with with those other two giants. And I still feel that. We don't know the full extent of what Tennessee wrote and contributed to the theater. If you go back from his writing from the late 1930s until the early uh, 1980s when he passed away in 1983, he wrote every day. And because he got involved in that stoned age period in the 60s and had dependencies on alcohol and drugs, and it was easy for critics and others to dismiss him as just being gone, that we sometimes will confuse the drug-fueled rantings of a once former theatrical genius with someone that was boldly trying to experiment and change with the with the times of the theater. And I think one of the things that we have been able to do is do a production like 8 by 10 and take on a play like The Gnaticus for All Line, which I think is one of the great postmodern plays of the American theater. And 
I would put it against anything that Albee wrote, um, Shepard wrote during that time. Um, and it's a wildly funny, absurdist, dark farce um, that you're having a tremendous time watching. And it's like a vaudeville sketch, this story about, uh, you know, a once uh, famous um, singer um, that uh, has found herself trapped in this uh, <laughs> boarding house in some remote key uh, that's a lot like Key West. And um, her becoming a metaphor for the artist and the the birds that claw at her eyes becoming a metaphor for the critics and the public that has turned their backs on her. Uh, on her. And in any event, I, I what's been interesting is to be able to do these you know plays like Glass Menagerie, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that certainly are are still staples in um, the uh, uh, curriculum and the reading list for uh, a number of new generation theater goers that are coming up in, in high schools and colleges. But then also to take them and our older, more mature audiences on this journey through the wild imagination of Tennessee Williams. And quite frankly, I think we've done you know, some wonderful work these last nine years, but I still think there's a lot more to do. And um, I'm I'm pleased with what we've done, but I often think I wish we had done it with even a more ambitious scale. Um, I, I, keep, I keep wondering why doesn't Hartford Stage have a National Humanities Grant of several hundred thousand dollars a year to support the work that we've got. I mean, and, you know, and I know why we don't. There's all kinds of reasons why other institutional pri- priorities emerge. And maybe the government's also not focused on giving as much money out to theaters anymore. But I think if if a, a project like that was more generously funded, you would really even see um, more discoveries coming out of it. That being said, I am I'm very pleased and grateful to the artists that have come up and given their time. Well, when we talk about Tennessee Williams Marathon, how many plays are we talking about, and how are you parceling them out over a period of time? In other words, how many a year, and what sequence, chronologically, or just sparkle, uh, intersperse the big ones and the little ones together? I mean, how, how do you select what you're doing? Well, it's it's changed through the years, John. I mean, in the beginning, uh, when we opened the theater with the production of Streetcar, we, we did something that was called all the View Carré plays. And we had Harvey Firestein and Estelle Parsons and Ellen Burstyn and Polly Holiday, all these artists coming up and reading all the plays that were written in and about New Orleans. And they were all done in, in, in a festival around Streetcar. And then when we did Camino Real, we would do a lot of of the plays that were more fantastically based and and had either um verse language in in their plays are you know characters that were either literary in their origin um are just very very fantastical writings um since then it depends on like when we did Glass Menagerie, we did the whole St. Louis plays and all the plays that were written and set in St. Louis. So some of the times, uh, at least every year, there's been a major production. And then surrounding that, there have, may have been readings of plays that that maybe all we ever do with that play is just a reading. Or in one case, several years ago, I did a reading of Lovely Sunday for Crevcore. And then a year and a half ago, I ultimately produced the play. So it's kind of been based on artist availability and also what our resources are but and i will say after this next year with milk train we're actually going to 
stop doing Williams every year. Um, and that's not to say that the marathon will stop. But but what's happened is is that as a theater's resources have become even more tight, if you do a big Tennessee Williams in one year, then that it makes it harder to do a big Shakespeare. Uh, uh, and I all the theaters in the country are having this kind of squeeze. So after 10 years of this project, I'm wanting to take a step back and allow the theater to have variety in, in, in what it's doing programmatically. However, I'm also aware that the Williams Centennial is around the corner. Um, it will be in 2011. And certainly, given Hartford Stage's role in amplifying and revealing uh, Tennessee's uh, full contribution to the American theater, I, I'm <clears throat> anticipating that the theater will play a major role in that. You're, you're talking at length about your association with an artist who you even talk about it almost as if you know him, but didn't have the chance to work with directly. But there are some other artists who you have long-standing associations with, and I quickly want to ask you about a few of those people. One of the most interesting ones being an actress whose name is probably not well-known across the country, but you have done 19 productions with Annalie Jeffries. Why, what makes a director want to explore that many different works with, with one actress? Earlier today, I was um, talking about Margaret Colin and Harriet Harris as two of the leading lights of of our American theater, and I, then I said, certainly of of the New York theater. And I partly said that because uh, Annalie Jeffries jumped to my mind as certainly uh, an actress that I would put. Uh, alongside Margaret Cullen, Harriet Harris, Cherry Jones. Um, and she has so infrequently been seen here uh, in New York um, because of personal reasons. Mostly, she chose to be a member of the acting company at the Alley Theater in Houston. They're raising her child, and they're taking care of her mother, who's now deceased. I've been fortunate to kind of... I began my career really my directing career with Anna Lee, working with her down in Houston. And she and I have explored a number of different plays together at a number of different theaters, including Tennessee Williams, including plays by Horton Foote, uh, including new plays by David Grimm. And um, she um, she is such a, a fantastic talent. She is a great inspiration. She is an actress that can do style, an actress that can... Um, play very simple, very small. Um, she has immense range. And um, I was excited to bring her to Playwrights Horizons uh, about four and a half years ago. I did a Christian play called What Didn't Happen. And Anna Lee came up and joined the company, with, uh, which included Chris Noth and Stephen Skybell and um, wonderful group. And I think that's one of the great things that we can talk about with our American resident theater is that there really is a whole community of artists that are performing and creating outside of what has been identified as the conventional center center of our theater, which is New York. And I welcome the opportunity of of these artists like Annalie Jeffries um, having more time on on the New York stages. Uh, but in the meantime, 
that work is uh, every bit as important, whether it's being done in Houston or Hartford or Minneapolis. Let me ask you about two other names, one which you just mentioned, Horton Foote. I'm about to start rehearsals uh, next month in middle of August for um, probably my seventh collaboration with Horton. Um, it's one of his finest plays, Dividing the Estate. Uh, um, and it's um, Horton at 91 years old will be in the rehearsals with me. Um, and I first met Horton 20 years ago when I was just finishing at Chapel Hill and I was about to leave for Cambridge. And he had come to my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he was reading at Sika. This was just not long after the occasion of a trip to Bountiful. And he was nominated again for an Oscar for that after winning it for Tender Mercies and To Kill a Mockingbird. But it went to Geraldine Page happily. That was great for her. Um, and I went to hear him speak, and I started asking him about the theater versus film because at that time I was so fixated and on on how artists move, whether it's seamlessly or not, in between the forms. And I asked him, I don't know why, I only just met him, whether or not he thought that I should dedicate myself to the theater versus film. And he said at the time... Uh, young man, I don't give advice. Um, <laughs> but he did give advice. He said, you know, the theater has been his lifeblood. It's been the thing that has kept him going all his life. And though he's enjoyed working in film and television, it's the stage that he loves working with actors, creating plays and telling stories for a live audience that he breathes with every night when he's there at the performances and is able to feel them being moved by the performance that's transpiring on stage. So the relationship with Horton goes back a long time and continued when I was uh, an associate director down at the alley and he and his wife Lillian were living in Wharton about 40 minutes away and he would come up and see Robert Wilson's When We Dead Awaken that had Lucinda Childs in it um, and Charles Honey Coles who was doing the knee plays in it and it would be this wildly deconstructed version of Ibsen's play as, would, as far from a Horton foot play as you can possibly yeah, get yes so you think oh my gosh what is Horton going to think of this and you know and then I'd get a call the next day and he'd say Michael I want you to come down to, to Wharton which is Harrison he said Lillian I'd like to have dinner with you and so I'd go down and we would talk about when he saw Ava Galleon do When We Dead Awake and, and that what, what, Robert, what Robert Wilson had done with Alvin Epstein and Stephanie Roth and his wonderful act, Cheryl Sutton, that was in that production. That was just fantastic. And to hear him embrace the experimentation and ask questions about, you know, why was she repeating that movement back and forth and why did she drop a glass and – it disappeared into a trap and and have such a loud sound. But his interest and curiosity in new forms in the theater reminded me of of Constantine's and and Chekhov's The Seagull. And I would stay there till past midnight just talking with him about the theater. Um, and we formed a very deep bond. And and I'm really fortunate to be, have spent so much of my life uh, in the theater with him. He's taught me a lot about acting, a lot about writing, a lot about directing. Um, and he's been a, a great, great friend. I'm going to ask you about one more person, and then I'll let John ask a few <laughs> questions. But Elizabeth Ashley. From Hortonfoot to Elizabeth Ashley. Well, <laughs> they, uh, they're both Southern. 
Um, <laughs> but where Horton is very genteel, <laughs> Liz is pretty uh, pretty raucous. Um, she likes to have a good time, and um, Liz uh, also goes back twenty years. I think I mentioned when I saw her do the Milk Train doesn't stop here anymore. Um, I she exploded for me what I thought the limits of a performance were on stage, uh, the way that she sees Tennessee's language and the depths of both passion and humor that she was able to transmit on stage was just mind blowing to me. Um, and since, uh, about 1994, since, uh, I've tried to get her to come to a production of Orpheus descending with me at the alley and due to an earthquake that destroyed her Studio City apartment out there when she was doing Evening Shade, that didn't happen because everything um, was upheaval in her life. Um, but we, she did come and start to see my work at Angels in America the next year. And then ultimately we started working together with the Red Devil Battery Sign, the New York premiere of Tennessee Williams play about the Kennedy assassination in which she played the woman downtown trapped in a Dallas hotel knowing too much about who took care of Kennedy. And of course Liz has her own conspiracy theories about um, the Kennedy assassination. I think she may, well (laughs) she knows some people in Dallas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was really great that she was... um, Part of that was back actually in 1996. So I've been working with Liz in the theater for 11 years, and I think um, she's also someone that's taught me a lot about acting. And we've done Virginia Woolf together uh, down at the Coconut Grove in Miami. We've done a number of plays um, in New York and at Hartford Stage, and it's been great to tackle so many plays, also by Tennessee Williams, with her since she was very close friend of his. They spent uh, a lot of times in the Caribbean together. Um, she trying to hotwire uh, electric typewriter so he could write when he was down there when they didn't really have power. Um, she is a major life force and uh, someone that uh, I just love being in the rehearsal hall with. Well, earlier we talked at quite some length about Tennessee Williams, about the Tennessee Williams Marathon. I think we need to be clear that it's not just Tennessee Williams that you do at Hartford Stage. You do many other works as well, including many classic authors, many new works, premieres of new shows. And in fact, right now, um, Eve Ensler's The Good Body is running. What might a typical season look like? I'm counting roughly 10 shows over the next 12 months coming up, whether it be seasons past or upcoming. How do you put together a season? What is a typical composition for a season? Well, there's um, a number of different components to the season, John. Um, the core component is our six-play main stage season, which was a program that was intact when when Howard Sherman was there um, running our our press so brilliantly. Um, since that time, um, the theater has added what it's called a summer stage program, where it uh, has lighter, um, decidedly more popular fare, uh, often deals with comedies or plays with music, that is really designed to attract and build new audiences for the future. And as you said, we've got Eve Ensler's The Good Body on stage, which uh, which was Eve's uh, big Broadway comedy after the vagina monologues that then went out on national tour. And Eve's been an artist that we premiered her Necessary Targets and 
which we took off Broadway uh, five years ago. And she's done a number of workshops with us. And it's great to have Eve back and telling stories um, for and about women um, that also have uh, a resonance for men as well. Um, and Frenchie from American Idol is doing Mahalia later this summer in August, which I think uh, after her stint in Rent is going to attract a great number of people. It's great to, to see someone who was let go from American Idol for supposedly having some, I don't know, was it illicit pictures or somewhere available playing the great gospel singer Mahalia, who was by Martin Luther King's side during so many of those civil rights uh, marches. Um, so that, that's a new program that's only been around for the last several years, our summer stage program. And then this year is to be the 10th anniversary year of uh, our adaptation of A Christmas Carol, A Ghost Story of Christmas, which stars Bill Raymond, who in typical Hartford stage fashion, it's it's not just your grandmother's Christmas Carol. He was a member of the Malibu Mines and did a lot of work with um, Joanne uh, Acolytus and um, – he was, you know, is the Greek and, and the wire, if you're a fan of that. And what he does with Ebenezer Scrooge and this Dickens classic is not to be missed. It's a really very special performance. And he's been doing it for nine of the 10 years that we've done that play. Um, but our typical season then is a mix of classics and new plays. And Hal Holbrook's starring in our town to open the season in the fall, which will be our big 25 actor classic. And then we have new plays by David Grimm, who just did Measure for Pleasure at the Public last year. He's written a play about Chick Austin, who was the great innovator of modern art that ran the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the oldest public art museum in America. Which is in Hartford. Which is in Hartford. It's, uh, and then Zerlina's Tale is this new play by Jeremy Sams, who wrote Amour and Indiscretions. And this is the world premiere of the English language translation of a play that Jean Moreau starred in Paris and that's also burned up uh, the stages in Germany uh, based on the Hermann Brock novel, The Guiltless. Um, Lydia Diamond is uh, coming in and bringing her adaptation of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye that we're going to do in collaboration with Long Wharf, which is a new collaboration that's emerged in the last few years. We're thrilled to bring Teresa Rebeck's play The Scene. Um, I love Teresa. We did Bad Dates with Annalie Jeffries a couple years ago. It's a great success, and it's great to have Teresa back. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Olympia Dukakis, uh, and the milk train doesn't stop here anymore. So it's I think it's a season of, of great variety, and it's got old classics like Our Town um, mixed in with a, a, a quite a bit of new work as well. Well, that's upcoming. Several years ago, you directed Enchanted April at Hartford Stage, which then transferred to Broadway, was nominated for a Tony. How did that show, how did to do, how to do the show, and then how did you transfer to Broadway? Um, Jeffrey Richards, who is kind of the man of the moment right now with Spring Awakening. Producer. Uh, producer, yes. Um, uh, Eleven years ago, when I was directing Elizabeth Ashley in The Red Devil Battery Sign, Jeffrey was the press rep for the WPA. And I remember uh, some restaurant in Chelsea when the review came out uh, – he took Liz Ashley and me into the men's bathroom. I didn't know what we were about to do. Um, <laughs> come to find out, he pulled some out of his pocket. I was like, what is this? I'm just a boy from North Carolina. I don't know what's going on. And it was a review from the New York Times, which was decidedly mixed for the young Wilson as director. Um, but it was blessed for Elizabeth Ashley, who, who said in her black slip, purrs again like Maggie the cat and paws at that bed and lets us know that she's vitally alive and anyway 
Jeffrey Richards is the one that brought me Enchanted April and said, Michael, I think this is the play for you to do. We did it at Hartford Stage with his support and under his license, and it was a huge success with our audiences. And not unlike old acquaintance, it's a play about women trying to find themselves and coming into their own and either doing that with or in spite of their husbands. And um, Jeffrey persevered, and uh, three years later that play was on Broadway with Jane Atkinson, who was nominated for Tony, as as you mentioned, in addition to the play, and Molly Ringwald and a stellar class, including Michael Comstein. So um, that was a, a great experience. Um, the only... Um, Note of regret was the stage manager, Wendy Beaton, who had done it with me in 2000, who had been my collaborator for 13 years, had passed on earlier that year in January by the time we brought it to New York. So um, um, that was kind of a labor of love for her. Did you bring it to New York then with the same cast? Um, Some of the same cast actually were involved in the show, ended up uh, standing by and taking over, including Isabel Keating who played Lottie, played Jane Atkinson's role in New- in Hartford and then took over uh, both for Jane and Molly at various times before she would go on for her Tony-nominated role in uh, Boy From Oz. Well, before we wrap up, I have one question. It's just been announced that Hartford Stage is planning a big fundraising campaign, one component of which is a renovation of the theater itself. The theater was opened in 1977, and as a former resident, I have to say, what do you want to do to the old house? (laughs) Well, there have been a lot of discussions, Howard, um, and one of the things that we don't want to do is at all change the special relationship that exists in that 489 intimate thrust stage between the actors and the audience. Intimate yet huge. (laughs) Well, it's an intimate audience relationship with the actors, but the stage itself is vast. I mean, it's as big as the Vivian Beaumont, really. Uh, It's it's kind of uh, a a kind of amazing um, stage space and allows for a lot of theatrical um, magic. Um, However, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure problems in a building that's 30 years old, and uh, we have unsexy things that need to be fixed, like heating and air conditioning and wiring. We've had some, during Kate Mulgrew's performance of Kate, uh, Catherine Hepburn and T at Five, the lights actually went out, and we had to finish it in work light. We still don't know where why the lights went out. So, I mean, stuff like that that have to, has to be addressed. Also, the, our building was open and built before there was ADA compliance, so there's no elevators in the building. There's really no really commodious way to deal with persons with disabilities. So we really want and need to address that. Um, as we all know, theaters around the country are becoming more gathering places, uh, not unlike uh, Barnes & Noble's around the corner from here. They're places where people come together and experience art and storytelling, but surrounded by coffee and conversation. So we're looking at expanding the public space. And my dream is to ultimately have a second stage for Hartford Stage. And um, I don't know, my Don Quixote uh, circling the windmills, I hope not with that one. But because uh, I think the, the company deserves it at this point in its history. And um, I'm hoping that that will also come about in this plan. Well, circling back to where we started, Old Acquaintance currently running at the American Airlines Theater here in New York through August 19th. You directed it. And, um, Michael, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks, John. Thanks, Howard. 
Thank you, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing, more than 400 hours of it, is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.